episode 13 with fashion icon Lana Turner. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with Harlem socialite and style icon, Lana Turner. Born at the Women's Hospital on West 110th Street and still residing in the neighborhood decades later, Miss Turner is quintessential Harlem, a landmark unto herself. A mathematician of dressing, Miss Turner does not just put clothes on, but uses her body as a medium in which she expresses her appreciation and preservation of life, style, and beauty, or as she likes to refer to it, painting the body canvas. A doyen of mid-20th century fashion and muse of New York Times street style photographer Bill Cunningham, Lana Turner and I were introduced almost a decade ago at the historic Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem when I was looking for a few hats for a fashion story while in grad school. Upon meeting and chatting with her, I realized quite quickly that it was she who needed to be photographed in her wardrobe and in her hats, of which there are upwards of, wait for it, 500. Well, actually, I believe the exact number is 638. But she's oh so much more than her sartorial prowess. Producer, director, preservationist, historian, writer, and swing dancer are just some of the roles she waltzes through. Recorded during quarantine, this is part one of a nurturing conversation with Lana Turner, which explores the discovery of self, her love for archiving, the theatricality of the black church, and ultimately, the art of living. Be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcast, and please share some of your favorite moments with us over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast. Ms. Turner has been such an influence on me and the way that I look at the world, and I'm so excited to share her with all of you wonderful, radiant souls. It is with great pleasure to introduce a laureate of style and fashion, Miss Lana Turner, to the IBI Podcast. Miss Lana Turner herself, which is her real name, um, is here, uh, who is who is a walking institute of black imagination and creativity herself. Um, and I think what what unites us is this our love of the archive um, and the sheer joy of not only the discovery of others, right? The discovery of the lives of others, but also the discovery of self that that the archive allows you access to, you know, it allows you access to multitudes within, actually. Um, and so maybe that's a good place to start. Like, you know, Many people know you as Lana Turner, the doyen of 1950s and 40s 
fashion, a, you know, a, a, a collector of a vintage who also actually wears them. But, but really, this is an archival practice. This is an archival art practice. Could you speak a bit about um, your love, desire, and um, raison d'etre of, I don't want to say collecting, but archiving? Well, I think um, in, in answering that question, I think it goes just beyond just archiving because I think the archiving element is in my DNA. It seems to have always been there without, you know, want for uh, formalizing that as an educational piece in my life. I think it's always been there. It might have been always been there in relationship to not wanting to be like my mother. My mother, who, God bless her, uh, was someone for whom things scattered seemed to be a perfectly great filing system until you need them. So I remember, you know, someone would call, let's say a newspaper or something, because, you know, I would show up in the newspaper or my brothers would show up in the newspaper, you know, while we were in high school. Um, and, you know, it was always important, because remember, this is a telephone, this is a time when, you know, newspapers calling, oh my gosh, now, well, it wasn't the New York Times, this was, you know, a little newspaper. And my mother, this is just to give you this crazy example, you know, most people would have maybe a pad and a pencil at the telephone, not my mother. It would be this call as though the fire department was there, oh my God, go get a pencil, I gotta find some paper. I mean, and we would just be scurrying all over the house. <laughs> Six of us looking for this thing that should just be there. And I thought to myself, what does it take to just have the thing sitting there? I mean, why is it always this emergency to get a pencil and paper? So, hence, my mother has written in everything, every Bible, it's got phone numbers in it, it's got <laughs> a telephone book, you know? Uh, because she, it's for want of something nearby. It was the Bible which she reads all the time. Oh, so let me leave that alone for a moment and try to answer your question. Um, I think for me, it is a love of things that I love. And I should always, um, I had adopted this policy a long time ago. Before I could articulate it, I would always do it. And I always maintained, you don't own anything unless you can put your hands on it and you can find it. So for someone like me, who has always had what I call the um, category of options, which is to say a lot of things, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be gloves or handbags or dresses, coats, shoes. But the part of me, which is something the public might have in mind when they think of me, the other part of me, which is probably even bigger, which is not as public, is the intellectual side. And it has always been very much a part of me. I've always loved and enjoyed books in all forms. So it is that love, and it's that love that makes me want to create my own order. And it's the order that I'm able to access rather readily. 
Um, in this case, I am working on what is the task of life at this point. I am 70 years old. I am, I don't mind telling anybody, uh, I am 70 years old. And for the last 15 or 16 years, I've had most of my library in storage under the mistaken impression that I was going to renovate three rooms in my apartment. That, after all of this time, has not happened. And I can stand it no longer. If there's anything I really missed was the ability to put my hand on a book that I wanted to go back to and read a passage out of. And that comes up a lot. And I have had to make do. So just to give you some idea of how traumatizing this is, when I pulled the genres together and then organized by author, because nothing is held to skelter, whether it's here or in storage, it's all contained. I would come across the fact that I had not one, not two, but sometimes three and four volumes of the same book. Now, why would somebody do this? Except that you can't get it because it's not easily accessible out of storage. You know you have it and you know you want to use it right away. I know most people would say, well, just go to the library. Well, yeah, except that you gotta get it back at a certain time and, and I just need it because I just need it and I just want it to sit here. Or, or I know it's a book that I love and I see it on a, let's say, thrift sale or some little book sale stand, right? Where it's like 50 cents. And I call myself saving the book so that, <laughs> because it's by an author or someone that I know or whose work I deem important. And I want to be able to pass that on. So I will get that book for 50 cents or a dollar or whatever it is they're asking for. It's usually some you know modest amount. And I will haul that in. So hence, you know, here, and I line them all up, finally all together, I have come across three and four, you know, of the same book. It's just craziness, but it's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it tells me I'm consistent. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that, but that practice also extends into, you know, your wardrobe as well. I mean... And and for many people not um, familiar with Lana Turner, Miss um, Turner is <laughs> she is a mathematician of dressing. You know, it is not just putting this on with this on. It is, I think, the you know, it's your artistic expression, um, and even the ways in which you treat each garment that they are folded inside out and tied, you know, with the ribbon, with a tag on it that explains the years that you wore it and perhaps maybe who you met when you had it on. Like, this is all archive as well. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a study of, of beauty and preser preservation. Well, the thing is, I think that anything that you touch or that you own has come to you 
because it has spoken to you. So for me, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, it could be a dress, a pair of shoes, you know, an art book, some flowers, a vase. Um, it, it could be anything. And, and I treat them all with reverence. And because that reverence is there at, at a minimum, it then extends into how it's kept. Mm. Uh, over time, I have um, certainly run out of space to just hang anything. I mean, that's just, you know, it, it's just impossible. I virtually would need every apartment in the 60 units in my apartment building <laughs> for all the things that I own. I mean, I know it sounds like a small exaggeration. Well, let's say I need at least three floors of the 10. <laughs> So, and you know, and they are things that I love. Some things are just so beautiful, you want to just look at them. And other things you, I love because I love the texture or the way the light hits it or, you know, how it moves in the air or the wind moves it. Or perhaps it's a um, statement. Let's say those, you know, three gauntlet gloves that I designed that are, meant to be their own piece. You know, like in, a, in, a, in any art gallery, you're not going to have several things competing for attention if you're thinking about it. You will, in the same way, take the main idea and allow it its own space. So I can do that with gloves and simply dress everything else down. But because they meant so much to me in the making, and because they mean so much in the wearing, and because they bring dimension as I move along. And because someone always remarks, oh my, where did you get those? Um, it requires that you do something beautiful with them, that they're not simply a pair of gloves. It's part of what makes up your personal canvas. And that painting, whatever that painting is, is to be revered. You know, sometimes I get dressed and I realize it's not quite right. Not unlike a painter who just says, oh, let me just whitewash this whole side and uh, let me start all over again. I have done that, being late for church, realizing I have on what is considered the wrong hat for me. Uh, somebody else would think it's perfectly fine and yet I know it's not. And I will get, you know, halfway to church, turn around and say, oh, I know exactly what it should be. Come right home and determine if I at least get to church when they do the benediction, I've at least gotten there. But at least the right thing is in the right proportion to the way I see it. It is the artist at work at all times. <laughs> I know it's absurd, but it has happened. <laughs> and when, when did that locus of attention change from what other people thought and or perceived to really owning it for yourself, right? So I ask that knowing, and including myself, that we not only perceive the world, we, are also, we also perceive us being perceived. And many people are moving through the world with the eyes of others like yes. you know even in that moment you know going to church 
yeah, I know it's not quite, but I don't want to be late, you know, or I don't want to embarrass. You know, you've, you've completely removed that. And you're like, no, this is, this whole thing is actually about my experience and my enjoyment of the experience. What was that shift? Was there a shift? Describe that. I don't know that there was a, a shift in which I could provide a date. I, I think that in large part, because I am a solo flyer, and it never occurs to me that I ever needed a posse for any reason. And I can take that all the way back to being a leader uh, with leadership abilities in junior high school. And while I was to some degree popular, to some degree, I never had what I call a posse, even though I knew lots of people and they knew me. And I had people that I always spoke to and they spoke to me but I never felt that I had to be validated. And I don't, I don't think I could have articulated that then. I simply acted on it. I didn't need someone else's thoughts about what and who I was even then. So I'm not sure if I could extend myself back beyond junior high school. I'm not sure what I was thinking before that. But I do know at that time, and so I'm in the seventh grade, and you are in junior high school here in New York City. Um, let's see, what were the things that were in fashion that I took to? Uh, French roll, wearing my hair in a French roll. Um, Russian boots, uh, they were in fashion. And pea coats, you know, you had to, yeah, right. So I think I had most of that. I don't know that I intentionally went out to pursue the look. The French roll was the way I just wore my hair. That's just, you know, you've known me for a while. My entire adulthood has been a ponytail. <laughs> my junior high school years was a French roll. <laughs> That's it. That's the extent of my hairstyling. Uh, so, uh, and you can just even imagine from that, I've always been feminine, but I've never been a girly girl, which is to say I'm not a makeup, I'm not, you know, fingernail polish, I'm not, and, and I have nothing against any of that. It's just that that never seemed to be me. So that notion of, you know, sort of following a kind of mainstream idea behind what is acceptable and what wasn't was not me. It, it had to come from things that I would absorb from more than, than people and the ads and, mm. and what was trying to get your attention. So I, and that's why I would have difficulty trying to figure out what it was. Certainly as an adult, it never occurred to me to try to ask anybody how and what I should look like. It just never occurred to me because I never, I don't operate that way. Um, and I have always felt that if it felt good for me, then that's where it was. That was the answer. And as I got older and um, uh, when my son left homes, which allowed me to expand my sense of self, uh, because up to that point, you know, raising a child, all of my effort and energy went into what was good for him. I love my son. His name is Eric. And, you know, every energy went into, you know, getting him to schools and making sure he had everything that he needed. And, you know, single woman, single mother, uh, taking care of all of that. 
But when he got old enough to fly away from the nest, it allowed me to expand my sense of self. Prior to his leaving, however, that sense of self um, was always in play. Uh, that sense of self was one thing that allowed for, um, for example, deciding to change, say, the furniture in my room. And I woke up one morning and I said, no, everything should not only be functional, it should also be beautiful. And without missing a step, I got rid of a dresser. I took away the nightstand. I did all of that because I started thinking about the aesthetics of beauty consciously, not knowing that it was entering my consciousness all along. I had no real sense of that. So for me, I think that there has always been something in there that's allowed me to just sort of march to my own drum. Now, I must say that when I got rid of the um, dresser and the nightstand, I had nothing to put my things on. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I figured I would dream that up later. But I just knew <laughs> immediately it had to go. And it did, same day. That's how it operates. That's how I operate, you know? Like, Isn't that also how your, your husband, <laughs> your marriage ended too? Just oh, yeah, of... absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I say that to say this. It, it, it had to because, um, for one thing, I was, I met him when we were in junior high school. That's when we met. And, you know, I'm a little true blue girl. So, you know, that's all I kind of knew in a way, just from my own parents. They were always together, even if they weren't always on the same uh, frame in their minds, but they were together. Um, and, and, you know, here was someone that I would, by the time I graduated from high school, it seemed to be a foregone conclusion that we would remain together. And we did on some level, uh, but it became clear shortly after uh, we were together and I was uh, uh, impregnant in having uh, Eric, that there was something fundamentally wrong with the way he perceived the world. It was as though um, he, he was so unsure of so much, and his only way of feeling secure was to sort of strike out to whatever was close, and I happened to be that person. Mm. I thought to myself, okay, let me do this. I'm good at trying to uh, keep some sense of what does it mean, even young. Uh, you know, I'm a young girl at this point. And when I realized that those things were, um, they just went over his head. He, he was not prepared to take on adulthood mm. or, or becoming a mature person. Um, somehow he felt that, you know, somebody else needed to pick him up and carry him. Well, I knew very early on that that was not my role. And when I proceeded to um, take that union apart. It was being very sober, having already tried out several things to maintain what I thought would be a, a good marriage. But it didn't last very long because, you know, he really did, as it turns out, over his lifetime, he really did need someone with whom he could depend 
you know, there's a huge codependency um, part of that personality. It wasn't so obvious when we were in junior high school or even in high school, because he tended to be sort of the leader mm. of his group. So you couldn't imagine that, you know, he was afraid of the entire world you know, in, in these leadership positions. Mm-hmm. So, um, but he was not the real leader. Turns out that I was the leader. And, um, and I also knew that there could be no growth against a crumbling structure that would find its way maybe to a foundation or maybe not. I will always help, but there is no point in my becoming a construction company. <laughs> amen yes amen (laughs) i swiftly took care of that so yeah so that's that's how that worked out but that's the only time i've ever been married i have no illusions about anything you know um and not that i have any issues about you know relationships or anything but I quickly under, I could quickly understand that everyone that comes into your life comes with their own suitcase full of stuff. Generally, if you're attracted, there must be something lovely in that suitcase that accommodates both your interests. But we all have our suitcases. And, you know, when you start unpacking, you realize some of that stuff really does not need to be in your life. So I have been fairly discriminating about what that means. And the other thing is, too, Dario, I'm not afraid of being alone. I don't equate being alone with being lonely. Mm-hmm. I don't equate that with not being able to move on in life. I don't spend time thinking about relationships. I am someone who has always had more than my share of interests that I pursue, and they take time. So if someone is in my life and I am devoting time, it must be something or someone pretty special because I like all the things that I do. I don't need to move over and make any more room for anything else. And I have, I think, a fairly balanced formula Not that I have to make that as a preconceived notion, but I think it's a pretty balanced notion of how I live. And I wake up every day happy. Every day is a happy day. You know, and after I've gone through all this time and I can see other people, I'm thinking, aren't they happy? They have, you know, well, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But I'm happy every day. What is this formula? the formula is I don't know if I could articulate it all so let's see I can start I can try Uh, there are things that I love so I love and I don't need other people to do it I just like being myself so I love reading I love going out and I, I would like to think that I was a photographer but I would dare not use a word like that and just say that I love taking pictures and I love framing things I love creating the kind of order that allows me time to sit and wonder and ponder. That's a very important period of time. It doesn't take a lot of time, 
but it's in my formula of things every day without my consciously having to think about it. It's looking at art, it's dancing. I love to dance and that comes from, I don't know if it comes just from me, but when we were young and my father would come home from work, one of the things he would do, other than swing us through his legs, as one of, you can tell we're little girls, but because he used to be at all these clubs in Harlem and would go to the, to the Savoy among places, he taught us how to swing dance by standing on his shoes. So my father, I just have these great memories of that. He wasn't a man of a lot of words, but he was a man of great import. And for that, um, it was the thing that allows me the music. So that's a good part of my day. My father uh, was the one who introduced me to Gershwin, only because he would have that on the radio. He never said, well, this is who this is. Um, and by extension, I would hear uh, music that reminded me of the tall buildings that in, in New York, where we lived. And I could hear the music swell and I could imagine the buildings swelling. So in some ways, architecture has also been mm. a big part of my life, um, both from seeing the big buildings as a little girl, but seeing buildings now as an older girl uh, and loving what came before and thinking about things that are new. So that's a part of the formula. Uh, there is looking at the sky. That's a part of the formula. Um, not only do I live on the 10th floor of my apartment building, and the sky is as much a part of my apartment as the apartment interior itself, but I have also taken time to fly once a year, though I haven't done it recently, to Santa Fe. And I would go to Santa Fe purely, only to see the sky. Imagine that, not to go do something or show up for something. I mean, certainly I would find things along the way and I certainly went often enough to know about going to the things that I loved. But I went primarily to see the sky because the first time I landed in New Mexico, what I could see um, just from the parking lot was I could see the rain in one corner, the sun in another corner, the place where I was standing slightly shaded because I could see the sky. There was nothing competing for my attention. And you could see it from miles around. And I thought, well, if this isn't the most delicious moment standing in the parking lot, of the airport, I'm thinking, what is? And so I made it a point of going to Santa Fe every year for many years to see the sky. And I would bring music with me, you know, the music you associate with, you know, sort of the Pueblo with the flute and a kind of airiness and its sound. I would, you know, and this is the era of cassette tapes. Mm -hmm. back then and I would have those tapes with me and the minute I rented that car those tapes would go right in oh I was just so in it I 
love. And again, I'm a solo girl. These are trips I take by myself, you know? Uh, and so again, it's when you ask, at what point does it not matter that you are dressed and people see you and do you, does it matter to you? I think in all of these examples, you've probably gotten that somehow that doesn't really enter into the sphere of how I think. I am, however, always pleased when I am passing and someone says, oh my God, you look terrific. But I am especially pleased when it's someone who is young mm. and who probably, you know, think that in my time, I would call it dungarees. Now you would call them jeans. Um, whose idea of getting dressed with a pair of jeans might be it. But who would stop to consider some frock that I have put together that somehow is amazing to them? Because if nothing else, I hope that it says to that person passing by, that there are many ways you can express yourself. It doesn't have to be this. But whatever it is, try to imagine going inside of yourself. That is the thing that allows you to stand tall. That is the thing that, does not, that allows you not to feel insecure about just yourself in the world. It's the thing that makes you try on things and be funny and be silly. It's the thing that allows you to express some version of yourself outside of what you've already known. And it's just you. There is no critic, you know, except yourself. So. Yeah, and, you know, I, I want to actually kind of pivot to the church and the mm -hmm. black church um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> because that is where we actually met um, yes. at Abyssinian um, yes. in Harlem um, mm -hmm. with Calvin, Dr. Calvin Otis Butts III mm -hmm. um, as, as pastor. Um, what role does spirituality and or the black church play in the way you live and express and see? Mm. Well, spirituality is the thing, and I separate that out a bit from religion. Because one can always, I hope, develop that aspect of the spiritual side of self, even if it has nothing to do with the um, corporate organization of a church. The spiritual side is the side that says to you that there is something bigger than the things that we know. Everything in the world, with all the books and all the language, has not been explained. And if someone could take credit for the sun, their name would be on it like the stadiums, but there isn't. And there's a reason for that. There is something bigger than all of us. Sometimes some of us can sense that 
you know, the feeling of how do you walk into a room and recognize it has its own spirit, just the room. How do you walk into a place bringing the things that come with you and it marries with something else and then it either congeals or is repelled? There's something that you cannot account for. Is it the sprinkler system? Is it the lack of windows? Is it a door that slides? I think not. I think that there are things that we cannot with all of our language and knowledge explain. So back to the notion of spirituality, it is the thing that is deep set. It is that place that we tap into and can continue to grow with. And it really doesn't matter how anyone gets to it or achieves it. I think we all come with some kernel of something that we can tap into and grow within ourselves. For some people, it's yoga or meditation or Buddhism or whatever it is that allows for you to understand what is inside of you requires that you find a place over time to be silent with yourself. Spirituality allows you to be kind because you can readily empathize with someone who could be lacking. Spirituality is music. It is the soul that responds to all of those things that allow us the excitement and the joy of being. It's not always the external. The truth is actually internal. And we do not spend enough time in our society putting emphasis on that. We think it is all about what we look like, what we're doing, how much money we make. Uh, no, that's not spirituality. Um, it is a different precept. It's got a different concept. And it's up to the individual to work that out. Some are far more advanced than others. Others are just babies and getting started, but it doesn't really matter where you are. Everyone can look up at the sky. Everyone can consider what the smallest animal is about. Everyone can look at the changing of the seasons and still wonder, how does this really work? You know, the inner workings of the things that we think are somehow not tangible. You can't put your hand on it. But ask, tell me, can you put your hand on love? It has many definitions. How many ways can you put your finger on love? You cannot. So I'm going to leave spirituality aside for half a second and go to church, <laughs> where it can also reside, actually. <laughs> does. Uh, but of course, with the Black church, we are looking at, or at least I look at it, as, the, as a critical foundation for our 
um, deliverance from the slavery, both external and internal. I look at church as a way to release the notion of what it means as a collective to breathe and to pray. I look at the black church in particular for all the things that go on in it that have more theatricality attached than any other house of worship I can think of. Now I'm throwing Pentecostal in there, I've got the Baptists in there, and there have even been a few Catholics known to break out in gospel songs. But I love the um, collective energies that Black people bring to anything. And when it comes to church, oh my goodness. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, not far from Abyssinian actually. Uh, it was on 127th Street and Fifth Avenue. And uh, it used to be called the Church of God, but then it became Bishop Brody's, of course the name has to be the Bishop Brody's um, uh, Church of God in Christ, that's what it was. So that's where my mother raised us. And uh, talk about pageantry, talk about uh, the formality of black people doing things like marching to put the money into the plate. Now I know in other churches you pass the plate around and that's how the collection. But in a Pentecostal church, it is very important to have everything and everybody on display at all times because it just could not happen other than that. I just, when I think about my childhood growing up there, I would not have wanted to be in any other place than there. Because when I think back to some of things that just seem to be so absurd, yeah, and they were just so serious. For example, um, think of the image, for example, of James Brown. And you know that moment where, the, um, I forget the, uh, the guy who would bring out his cape, you remember his name? Mm -mm. But he brings out the cape, but James Brown isn't quite finished, you know, and he is, please, please, and he, you know, and the cape comes and, you know, he throws it off and then the cape comes again, right? The cape comes straight out of the Pentecostal church. Bishop Brody had that cape every Sunday. And the nurse who was assigned to give him that cape, <laughs> I mean, it was a thing. The First of all, the church is jam-packed. Everyone is like just in awe of this, you know, preacher man. And he is just the epitome of what the king should be. I cake, everything but a scepter, literally. And behind him is a choir that you couldn't put another person on the choir stand. The place was, and, and the organist and the pianist. I mean, you know how these churches roll. I mean, the music gets going, the choir is swaying, the church is rocking, the minister is carrying on, and people are now shouting and falling under the bench. And in a Pentecostal church, you do shout. Running around, speaking in tongues, people interpreting the tongues. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you could not imagine being in a place like that. To grow up in that milieu with that many, I mean, it was huge. It was a big place. With that many people every Sunday, 
And church did not have a time to end, by the way. So it could start at 11. I guess it did. But it never ended before 2 o'clock, which is why these churches, that one in particular, but Pentecostals in general, had dining rooms in the church because you had to have dinner before the next service. There was always another service in there. So it was, and I mean, a full array, a full complement of dinner and desserts and, and even a candy stand mm. for the kids, you know, because we were expected to be there all day too. It was, Dario, I think, when I think about it, it was this wonderful incubation period for me. Not knowing, of course, I couldn't understand one thing that was going on, but growing up in it, you became accustomed to seeing people shouting or rolling under the bench or, you know, talking back to the minister. I love the talkbacks and him throwing his head back, ah, you know, and that sort of thing, and the choir shaking and rolling. It was one of those places, and one of those places in my memory and in my heart that is held so dear because Sunday mornings, that building that is now a condo, the upper part of the building was where the main service was held. But Pentecostal churches have a way of having services, you know, several times during the week. So on Friday night, that was like the second most important day of the week, Friday night. And that service was held in the basement so that the windows, you know, this is pre-air conditioning, the basement would then, um, the basement would then have these huge windows and people passing by would stop to enjoy the church because the organ was rolling, the choir was happening, things were going on that just made you, didn't matter who you were, stop and just stand out there because it just caught all of you. So that was that. Now going to Abyssinian, which is a lot more sober in its presentation, but nonetheless informative and, um, and also uh, a place in which I think Reverend Butts, without fail, would always have in his sermons things to really think about. Mm -hmm. I can think of a few things like, um, uh, you know, I remember he said things like, call that relative that you haven't spoken to in at least 10 years. Talk to um, someone or just do something special, something somebody doesn't even imagine that would be coming to them. I can think about um, the admonition of what it means to be black in the black community, where it was changing. And he would advocate for people to go out, buy houses, you know, invest in the community. Those were things that, that and so much more mm -hmm. truly invaluable. And indeed loved being in church. I'm a church girl, and like any other community. There are microcosms of that church within, in its big body, there were all the small bodies. And that's how you and I would connect because we sat in the same sections yeah. every Sunday after Sunday. So in taking attendance, you would know if I was there and I would know if you were there, not there. So 
uh, and other people that would sit around us. So it was what I think an important part of my life here in Harlem, where I've always lived, by the way. Um, but it was a very important place for me at a very important time. I'm so thrilled that you joined us today for part one of this conversation with the always intriguing Lana Turner. Join us next week when the conversation pivots to New York's own Black migration, the birth of the Harlem Renaissance, and the advice Miss Turner would give her 20-year-old self. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to send it to one friend you think would really love this conversation. And as always, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes, which really helps out. And shout us out over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast and on Twitter at Black Imagination. That's B-L-K Imagination. Tweet some of your favorite quotes with the hashtag processing the pod. And if you're able to drop a few bills to support this work, please click the support link in the show notes, which really helps a lot. Thank you all so much for spending time with us today. And as always, remember that Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming. 